to another edition of Welcome to the Mad Max Minute. Love and compassion, their day is coming in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 105, which begins with assistant dialogue editors Phil Dixon and Sue Blaney, and it ends with model painter Sue Maybury. That is the last of the credits that you will hear for today's minute, because while these people work hard and they should be celebrated, we don't, because we're just Awful people like that. Just <laughs> awful, awful, terrible people who talk about other stuff related to the movie. It's okay. We're scratching our own analytical itch. Yeah. Speaking of scratching itches, have you noticed where all of my openers have been coming from this week? Well, I assume they're from the song. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Nail right on the head. Okay. I can't help but look at these names scrolling across the screen and just get lost in Tina Turner's rendition of Beyond Thunderdome. Well, technically, it's We Don't Need Another Hero, parentheses, Beyond Thunderdome, and parentheses. I don't think we've ever talked about the theme for this movie, though. We talked about One of the Living and how it won a lot of awards and things like that, but I don't think we've ever spent that much time thinking about the true theme to this movie. No, we haven't. Which is too bad because we could seriously devote an entire episode just talking about that song. But we don't have an episode to devote to it. Well, we can we can devote some time to it. We don't have to brush it off completely. So the song, We Don't Need Another Hero, parentheses, Thunderdome, and parentheses, in 1986, it got a Golden Globe nomination for Best Original Song and a Grammy nomination for Best Female Pop Vocal Performance as songwriters Terry Britton and Graham Lyle received the 1985 Ivor Novello Award for the best song musically and lyrically. Not bad, huh? Nope. Since I'm sure everyone has seen the music video, they'll be familiar with the fact that it features Tina Turner dressed in her Auntie Entity costume, and it's got all these spotlights around her as the camera just moves around, and then all these kids come in in a choir, and they sing the part... And we finally get to see Tim Capello as her rightful saxophonist. (laughs) It got an MTV Music Award nomination for Best Female Video. And the choral group was from the King's House School in Richmond, London. Reading through the lyrics, I'm finding them a bit contradictory. Oh, yeah? So the first verse says, We are the children. We are the last generation. We are the ones they left behind. So clearly she's talking about the waiting ones. Mm -hmm. Which... By the way, had absolutely nothing to do with Thunderdome. So why they're even included in the song, I don't know. But she talks about living under the fear till nothing else remains. They were not living under fear. They were fine. And then it jumps right into the chorus saying, we don't need another hero. We don't need to know the way home. Yes, that's exactly what they were looking for. They needed a hero. They needed somebody to show them the way home. And they found someone to show them the way home. I appreciate the feel of the song. But it's contradicting the movie pretty clearly, unless you interpret it a different way. Second verse, there's got to be something better out there. Love and compassion, their day is coming. I do like the line, so what do we do with our lives? We leave only a mark. Will our story shine like a light or end in the dark? That is very much Savannah. I see her not wanting to live her life 
in the exact same way that everybody else lived their lives, that she receives a spark from Max that things aren't the way they thought they were. And she decides to go do her own thing. She wants her story to shine like a light, not end in the dark. So I like that one. The song really seems to be mostly about the kids. And I suppose you can draw parallels to Bartertown that everybody is just looking for something better. Except Bartertown wasn't looking for something better. Bartertown was put up on a pedestal as the something better. Mm -hmm. I like the song. It's got a great feel to it. But once you dig into the lyrics, I'm a bit confused. <laughs> See, I like the song as a whole, especially where it applies to the waiting ones. The idea that they came out of the ruins, they came out of all of this destruction, and that they're not the sort of people that are going to turn around and make the same decisions, the same mistakes that the world before them made. But they do make the same decisions and the same mistakes as the adults before them do. They take the leaving. And if it wasn't interrupted by Max, they would have kept doing that same thing over and over again to no improvement, to no results at all. That wasn't exactly what I meant by the mistakes in question. I know. But I see where you're coming from. It is a valid observation. And as far as making the same mistakes as society before them, before the fall, I guess so. I mean, at, at the moment, they don't have the choice to make those mistakes or to not make those mistakes. Yeah. They're just children. They are, as the song says, the last generation, the ones that were left behind. And I like the idea of this song being more or less Savannah's POV because she sits there wondering if things are ever going to change, living under the fear of being left behind permanently, living under the fear of being forgotten by Captain Walker, of ultimately being discovered by a hostile force. There's a lot to be afraid about in the wasteland that we don't necessarily get to see because we catch the waiting ones in such a particular situation. And I look at Savannah and I think she's absolutely in the position of the singer in the chorus where she says, we don't need another hero. She doesn't care anymore who Max is because Max isn't Captain Walker. That idea of a hero has fallen out of style with her and she doesn't need to know the exact way home because she's going to find it herself. It's a nice declaration of independence, as it were. The idea that, yes, the wasteland is a harsh and unforgiving place, but you know what? We don't need another hero. All we want is life beyond Thunderdome. All we want is life beyond the idea of brutality in the wasteland. Okay, looking at the song again from specifically Savannah's point of view, I think I can see it better. Mm -hmm. And I think it applies better and is more of a journey than I thought originally. Yeah, reading through it again, I think the song is specifically about Savannah. Yeah, especially when you get to the bridge where it says, so what do we do with our lives? We leave only a mark. When Savannah took the leaving, she put a mark on that wall. And in the eyes of the waiting ones, that's all. That is the entirety of her life. She leaves only a mark when she goes... And so the options are, will her story shine like a light? Will she be forever remembered as the one who tumbled Walker and changed the fate of the tribe forever? Or is it just going to end in the dark with her disappearing into the nothing and never coming back? And it's up to her to give it all or nothing. I guess it's appropriate that we have two female leads, Auntie Entity and Savannah Nix, and Tina Turner 
is using her particular talent to tell the story of the other female lead, Mm -hmm. which makes the idea of Fury Road and how it is so centered on feminine power not come out of the blue so much. This movie, we have two tribes, both led by women, and those women make decisions and make mistakes and do daring things and want more for their people. And it is definitely promoting and showing the abilities of female leaders. Yeah. And it's not perfect, but female leaders, even though they are to be encouraged, both in fiction and nonfiction, that doesn't mean they're infallible. It means they're just like everybody else. I think that might be the biggest positive for this movie is that she's shown in a realistic manner. There's the idea of, shoot, it's the Madonna or the... The Madonna horror complex. The Madonna horror complex. Where women in media are lumped into one of two categories. Either they are the matronly figure who represents purity and chastity, or they are the maiden figure who represents sexual energy and a rebellious bend on society. And I think Savannah embodies attributes of both of those. She is rebellious. She is young and very attractive, but her attractiveness never actually plays a role in her character. Mm -hmm. Yes, she's got fantastic legs and you get to see them but max never notices her legs so it really doesn't make a difference it's up to us to either notice or not notice but she is also a matronly figure she's a literal mother she is which that literal motherhood partway through the film is then taken away from her but she's the one that tells the story and that is very matronly that responsibility and that mantle, literally, that is put on her to tell the story. So she has attributes of both, and then she's got other attributes completely different. Going off that idea of female characters embodying both of these Hollywood archetypes, Auntie is a woman who is very seductive in her ways. She has a manner about her that she can make things sound really appetizing and very charming. But her name is also Auntie. And I think she sees herself as the mother of Bartertown. Yeah. Just because she's not everyone's direct mother doesn't mean that she's not a female figure of authority within a family structure. Right. When you think about all of the other characters like Big Rebecca and Warrior Woman and Savannah and even Kusha. Kusha holds her own. Yeah. She stands up to Slake full bore She does. And she is... The very definition of a Madonna. She is eight months pregnant. And just like Mary, the mother of Jesus, had to go on a trek very, very pregnant. Mm -hmm. So she is literally the Madonna. And especially because there's no obvious father, she just is pregnant. And the idea of fatherhood is never even brought up. That makes her even more of the Madonna. But she's not meek. She's not submissive. She participates in the adventure just like everybody else. Mm -hmm. You see, I knew we'd loop back around to the waiting ones via the song. (laughs) (laughs) So we discussed at the very top of this season the idea that Terry Hayes went to George Miller and was like, I have this story about these kids in the wasteland. We can make it into a Mad Max movie. How do you think that was executed? Was it executed well? Do you think it could have been done better? 
What's your assessment here at the end? I think it could have been done better, but here at the end, I definitely appreciate it more than I ever had in the past, Mm -hmm. which I anticipated. I've been excited about analyzing this movie minute by minute for a while because I knew that there could be more to The Waiting Ones than casual viewing this kids come out of the blue and take over the movie i knew there was more to it and i definitely found more to it that being said i think it could have been done a little bit better i put some thought into this to try and figure out okay if i jumped in a time machine went back in time and found george miller as he was working with terry hayes to write this what would i have told them to change about the waiting ones and i couldn't think of anything concrete nothing stood out in my mind as to what i would have changed about them with the exception being don't cut out gecko's death scene i found that very powerful in the storybook the idea of it alone I thought was very interesting, and I think it was a serious misstep that they cut it out. That's the only thing I think I would change about The Waiting Ones. I very much agree about Gecko. I think that could have added a lot to their storyline. I guess specifically beyond Gecko, what I would wish to see on their storyline is more integration when the two locations were brought together. The waiting ones coming into Bartertown was so brief and so chaotic that those two groups never really mixed. People like Ironbar or Auntie, who were out there trying to get Master back, had no idea who these kids were. And I would have liked them to know who the kids were, I guess. Mm -hmm. I'm not really sure how or how to execute it, but the starkness of the change between Bartertown and the crack in the earth was so severe and so out of the blue that I think that could have been remedied on the back end Okay. with more integration. Like, we spend most of the movie showing you location A and location B, This is why we spent so much time showing you those two locations, because they're going to come together in an important way. So maybe we could have spent a little bit less time in Bartertown the first time around, Mm -hmm. gotten to the waiting ones a little bit quicker, and then got back to Bartertown a little bit quicker so that we could spend more time in Bartertown with everybody together. I can see that. The first part of the movie is introducing your locations and your characters. Well, in this movie, that takes 50 minutes to get through introducing all of our characters. And then the main conflict happens. The difference in this movie is each location has its own conflict. Right. That is relatively isolated. Even if Max hadn't been exiled from the city and had ended up out in the desert for a different reason, his return to the city would have been in a similar way. Mm. He would have still tried to get supplies in some way and then pig killer would have just taken over and done an escape thing it would have been pretty interesting to see the story beats in the waiting ones storyline in the crack in the earth be more directly related to barter town because you're right there are two portions of this movie there's the barter town portion and then there's the portion in the crack in the earth we get a tiny bit a little bit of overlap when they're in underworld before they bust out of there and then it's out on the road There's no common thread 
aside from Max being there, between those two locations. It's not like Max gets sentenced to hard labor, and then they have some sort of, oh brother, where art thou breakout, where he's also got two other guys on a chain, and the three of them make it to the crack in the earth. And suddenly, it becomes this conflict between Max and one of the other chain gang guys, where this other prisoner is like, oh, I'll tell Auntie where all of this is, and I will get released from hard labor. And that creates another conflict, because now there is conflict between Barter Town and the crack in the earth that Max has to intercede on. And really, there isn't any conflict between the two locations. The only reason that Savannah and her group end up in Barter Town is because they need supplies. Yeah. But there's no conflict between them. Pig Killer creates the conflict by stirring the pot while... The waiting ones happen to be there. So he creates the conflict. And it still doesn't really have anything to do with the kids. The kids just kind of follow along. Mm -hmm. They all climb the train truck and end up on it as it's rolling away. It seems very happenstance. That's because it is. <laughs> it is. So here at the end of the movie, Savannah and the tribe that left have more or less reclaimed Sydney. And I have to wonder if it's worth the sacrifice. And by sacrifice, I mean losing Finn, losing Gecko, leaving behind everybody in the crack in the earth. Was it worth all that hardship just to reclaim the city? I feel like my answer is going to be tainted because I'm not a city dweller. I am a country girl. I like living out in the middle of nowhere where there are no people. I like it that it's dark at night. I like that it's quiet. So my answer is no. I think that they should have stayed. But that answer is also tainted by knowing the whole story. If I had been in Savannah's shoes at that moment where my whole... Belief system? Yeah, my whole belief system has crashed down around me. Okay, well, what's my next step? Well, maybe I would have gone. Maybe I would have said, I can't sit here forever with no hope of anything ever changing. I can't spend the rest of my life here in this paradise I have to try something else. Maybe I would have, but I don't think so. I think I would have been happy in the crack in the earth. The thing that I see when I look at Savannah and the others reclaiming Sydney and lighting the fires and attracting people to come back, I don't necessarily see them becoming a great tribe like the one in the north led by the feral child. It's a whole lot of good intentions and enthusiasm, but at the same time, I don't necessarily see them becoming great. No. I think to be called great, they need to cross that line between sustenance living and whatever it's called when you move beyond sustenance living. I think where, it's called growth. Yeah. And they are never going to grow beyond sustenance living because of their environment. That city is being taken over by the desert. They're going to have a hard time growing crops. They're going to be a hunter-gatherer society. And hunter-gatherer societies also, now I'm not sure if this is like a rule, but don't they need to be a bit nomadic? I think so. And Savannah's society is not nomadic. If you're not farming, there's no reason to stay in one place. The reason the waiting ones were sticking around is because they had established fishing areas, gathering areas. They had places they could go for fresh water and food. Sydney has none of that. The harbor itself disappeared. Where did the ocean go? <laughs> I'm still on about that. 
But the whole exercise, ignoring the fact that they do survive for multiple years after the end of this movie, we see them at a later date in their history that they are still around, that they are still surviving. I just don't understand how they're doing it so well. Right. You mentioned growth. There are an awful lot of kids there, which means there are enough resources to spare to procreate. Yeah. If there are not, it's not going to stop women from getting pregnant, but those babies aren't going to be able to survive if there's not enough food to feed an extra mouth. And doing that over and over and over again, they have to be able to sustain that growth in population, but I don't know how they're doing it. I question that. It's one of those things that we're probably not supposed to be thinking too hard about. We're supposed to look at, oh, look at all of them. They're so much older. There's so many more kids. They must be doing great. They must have figured out the secret to city life to reclaim the things. And there's no reassurance that they actually have that infrastructure built up. There's no reassurance that, oh yeah, they found fresh water, that they are able to grow sustainable food. All we know is that they're still there, their population is growing, and that they're attracting new people to come join them. And as great of an idea as that is, I still don't have a lot of confidence in it. I have more confidence in a voiceover telling me that they did great than seeing someone years down the road being productive. I wish that we had gotten an epilogue on the waiting ones that were left in the crack in the earth. I'm very curious about how they did. That's an excellent point because we never get any indication that they went back for them. Nope. So now you've got two separate tribes made out of one. <laughs> yeah. And thinking about growth and the crack in the earth, Savannah and Kusha and Anna Goanna were the three oldest females that we saw. Mm -hmm. Everybody else were literal children. Yeah, so it would be several years before they could start getting to that point where they would be adding population again. The problem with the kids in the crack in the earth is that they don't have enough population to be sustainable. I forget where you got it from, but a long time ago, you told me that there is a magic number when it comes to sustainable populations. 200 breeding pairs. Which is way more. Uh-huh. That's than, a lot of people. Yeah. Neither of the tribes, the one in Sydney or the one in the crack in the earth, or even the one in the great northern area, they didn't start off with 200 breeding couples. Maybe they found more. It could be the same way for the tribe that left in Sydney, that they just found more people. But there's no way that the waiting ones in the crack in the earth could get that much population. And that number, 200 breeding pairs, that's more in reference to a sustainable gene pool. Yeah. That you have the variety that you're not going to start sharing genes too, too much, and that they won't uh, degenerate. Which... Without a proper gene pool, yeah, their community can grow. But by necessity, people who are too closely related are going to start breeding. Especially because they are an isolated group who doesn't have a societal faux pas and also doesn't know the science of why it's a bad idea. Yeah. So they're going to start getting breeding pairs that are too closely related and it's going to be a problem. These kids just can't catch a break, can they? No, they really can't. I think they're screwed no matter what. I know that I 
have said in the past, and I, I still do think it, that I wouldn't mind staying in the crack in the earth and just living in this paradise. But it's not all fishing and boars. If you're thinking within the framework of just one lifetime, then sure, go ahead, do whatever you want. But we're trying to think multi-generationally, and that's really where the problems arise. And I'm willing to bet that when George and Terry, you have to hope they excuse me using their first names so informally, but I'm pretty sure when they sat down, they didn't think how many years can these guys exist before they just disappear from the face of the earth. Which, when you get right down to it, does it really matter if they all just get to a point where there's none of them left and they just disappear? I was just thinking the same thing because I was thinking about our society today and how many civilizations have come and gone. And who knows how many we don't even know about. Every part of the world has remnants of societies where we look at it in modern times and we're like, we don't really know much about them. We call them this, but that's really all we know because they came and went. Yeah. We keep talking about how, oh, you know, their population isn't sustainable and how are they going to do this? How are they going to do that? At the end of the day, they're living their lives. The waiting ones in the crack in the earth, they fish, they forage, they hunt. They're living. They're not going hungry. Nope. They've got fruit. They've got sustenance. And the ones in bombed out Sydney, they've got shelter and they've got places to explore and things to keep them busy day in and day out. These people are just living their bliss. And here we are complaining about their genetic pool. Right. They don't care about their genetic pool. Nope. No, they don't. Each of us individually, yes, we have a certain responsibility to future generations. But our first responsibility is to ourselves. We live our lives in ways that make us happy. And there are aspects of our lives that we need to live in such a way that we think of future generations. But you do you. We spend an awful lot of time, I feel, poking at the waiting ones and bringing up gripes about them. Aside from the idea of making Barter Town more of an effect on the waiting ones, is there anything else that you think would have drastically improved the waiting one storyline or maybe not even drastically just minorly improved the waiting one storyline i think it might have been interesting to see more waiting ones who were old enough to take part in the debate about whether to stay or go if that debate had not been taken over by max had stayed between the waiting ones themselves and had more people on each side, we might have gotten more insight into their society and yeah. how they self-rule. That might have been really interesting. It would have given us an opportunity to readdress the idea of people deciding their fate that we saw back in Road Warrior. Mm -hmm. You have that portion of the movie after Humongous leaves... He's delivered his ultimatum, said, walk away and there'll be an end to the horror. And then we get to see Papagallo and Big Rebecca and all of the other members of the compound discuss what their next move is going to be. And it was very telling about the sort of people that we were watching. And seeing this grand argument come down between more or less Slake and Savannah. Anna Goanna piped up, Kusha, Gecko, and Mr. Skyfish were there. But all of the other kids remained largely quiet, and there didn't seem to be much of a structure on Slake's side of things. 
Right. And even with Big Rebecca and the people who supported her, they didn't, most of the time, they didn't really have lines. They didn't have names. But they had actions. But they did. Yeah, you're right. They had actions. They laid down their weapons. So we knew that they were supporting Rebecca. We didn't get any of that with the waiting ones. Something also that would have been a nice addition to that particular debate, because we've already decided that the Gecko storyline should have stayed in, the romance between he and Anna Goanna would have also been there. One of them coming down on one side and one on the other would have also been an interesting dynamic to see play out on screen. Mm -hmm. I think that is what this boils down to, the idea that Gecko should have had a bigger part in the Waiting One storyline. And his removal, his very unceremonious removal from the story and the exclusion of all of the stuff revolving around him and Anna Goanna was a huge detriment to the movie, I think. This movie is 107 minutes long. Fury Road is 120. We could have gotten another 13 minutes out of this movie just by adding in a few things here and there. Yeah, we would not have needed 13 minutes to add Gecko and Anna Goena and Gecko as a pair back into the movie. Mm. Would have only taken a few minutes. Probably could have done it in less than five. Easily. So here at the end of things, we're at the end of week 35 here. We've got two more minutes to go after this. Coming up on Monday... Here we are in the home stretch, so we're going to shake things up a bit. We have been spending the last several months so focused on the individual minutes that I'm worried that we're missing the forest for the trees. So we're going to take a step back, we're going to watch the entire movie all over again as a whole, and talk about it as a singular viewing experience. So come on back on Monday for that, and we hope you'll join us. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Mad Max Franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. And our outro music is We Don't Need Another Hero by MilitiaVox of MilitiaVox.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com where you can check out our Tee Public storefront by clicking the store link join our Patreon by clicking the support link, or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link. Thank you for joining us for Minute 105 of Beyond Thunderdome. See you next time. Everybody